Welcome back to The Wrestling Room. It is great to be with you again. And so if you have your Bible, grab it. Uh, we are going to be in the Word of God once again. And that's what we do on The Wrestling Room. We grab the Scripture and we wrestle through it to find what God thinks about life, what God's viewpoint is. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that our world is in turmoil. The uncertainty, the anxiety is at an all-time high. This week has been nuts, and it only uh, is going to get more intense. So my intention when we come together is to get out of the weeds of all the uncertainty, the anxiety, and all of the speculation, and to climb up onto the mountain with God through his word and find out what he has to say. How does he see life? How does he think about things? I want the mind of God. I don't want the opinions of people. I love what C.H. Spurgeon said, the old, the old battle axe of a preacher from England. He said, when you preach, you, you come with the word of God in one hand and the newspaper in the other because you want to be able to see how the Word of God is so relevant to your life today. And that is my, my passion and my goal in all of our teaching, is to show you, brothers and sisters, how relevant this book is to right now, today, in your life, where you live. This is not some dusty old manuscript that is out of date. It is more relevant today than it ever has been. It is speaking to us right now. Prophecies in this book are coming to pass as I stand here recording this teaching. So we're going to dive in once again to the scripture and find out what is God thinking? What is his view of our world as we live in it right now so that we can walk forward confidently? We're not going to know all the, the, the minute details, but we can know enough to walk forward confidently with our face shining with hope, with joy, with anticipation of good. And so that is our goal today. What is God doing? What is God thinking? And so I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into the book of Jonah. Just a couple verses and a couple snippets out of the book of Jonah. So pray with me. Father, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Show us, teach us, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In 612 BC, a coalition led by the Babylonians burned the largest, most prosperous, most beautiful city in the world at that time to the ground. Burned it to the ground. Nineveh, the capital city of the empire of Assyria was no more. Done. Finished. It was situated on the banks of the Tigris River, which was the superhighway between the Mediterranean region and the Indian Ocean. Much trade, lots of wealth, a lot of money exchanged, produce, products exchanged. Possibly 600,000 people living in that city. Some believe that it housed the original Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world, but it was burned to the ground, done, finished. Today, it's nothing more than an archaeological heap outside of modern-day Mosul, Mosul in Iraq. When these events transpired in 12 or 612 B.C., 
the prophecies of the book of Nahum in the scripture, one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament, were fulfilled to the detail. To the detail. The prophet Nahum had prophesied 30 to 40 years prior to this event in detail that Nineveh would be destroyed. Here's what Nahum 3 verse 1 says. It says, What sorrow awaits Nineveh, the city of murder and lies? She is crammed with wealth and is never without a victim. Let me give you a couple thoughts about Nineveh. Why was it destroyed? Nineveh was hated by the people of the world. It was barbaric. It tortured and exhibited cruelty in ways that had never been seen. And the rulers and the leaders of Nineveh bragged about it. They were proud of it, skinning people alive, cutting off appendages, using people for for human torches, tearing out their tongues, brutality on a scale never seen. But not only that, they were a city of dark spirituality, sorcery. Uh, Archaeological digs have unearthed thousands of incantations, and not only did they practice those in Nineveh, they literally perpetuated them out into the world. They were a mentor to the world for dark spirituality, for demonic activity. They were wealthy, they were prosperous, they were proud, they were brutal. And the last verse of Nahum reads this way. It says this, There is no healing for your wound. Your injury is fatal. All who hear of your destruction will clap their hands for joy. And when the fires died down in 612 BC and the smoke cleared over what had been Nineveh, the world arose in a standing ovation, cheering, exultation, jubilation, joy. Nineveh was gone, this monument to pride and barbarism and demonic activity. No more, no more. But that wasn't the whole story. 100 years prior to that event in 612 BC, a crusty old prophet climbed out of the ocean, climbed out of the sea, bleached and blanched and smelling foul. (laughs) And this glowering, angry prophet walked for three days from one side to, uh, to the other of Nineveh, declaring and proclaiming an ominous message. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And you know the story of Jonah. 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed, but Nineveh was not destroyed. 40 days later, Nineveh was still standing. What had happened? Was it a false prophecy? What had transpired? And that's what we want to look at today and just glean about four different thoughts out of this story of Nineveh and the story of this prophet Jonah. So the first thing I want to share with you is this. God sees and knows all of the wickedness that is going on in our world. God sees and he knows all of the wickedness. And that seems like a very fundamental and basic premise and basic thought, but I want to develop it a little bit and maybe a way you've not thought of prior. 
So uh, Jonah chapter 1, starting with verses 1 and 2. And here is what the scripture says. Jonah 1, 1 and 2. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. In other words, confront it strongly. For, and here's the phrase we're going to look at, their wickedness has come up before me. For their wickedness has come up before me. How does God see and know everything? Well, that seems like a simple answer. He is omniscient and omnipotent. He sees all, he knows all, and he can do anything because he's all-powerful. That is a given. But I want to expand this a little bit because it appears that God gathers information and makes decisions based on a collective effort, through a collective effort. Now, what do I mean by that? It seems to be that in the courtroom of heaven, it doesn't operate on a because I said so basis. God calls witnesses that bring evidence. Interesting. Interesting. Here's what the scripture says. Through the testimony of two or three witnesses, let every fact be established. Through the testimony of two or three witnesses, let every fact be established. And so I want to share with you three different witnesses initially under this first point that God sees and knows all the wickedness. Witness number one we see in this passage. It says that their wickedness, God says to Jonah, their wickedness, the wickedness of Nineveh has come up before me. What does that mean? Literally, it means that the wickedness of that city, the events, the situations, the brutality, the demonic worship, all of it had literally ascended or climbed the staircase of heaven and were, was literally standing face to face with God. As if God was taking a report from a messenger that had come directly from Nineveh who was standing there in his throne room. It appears that God has reporters that bring reports to him. Though, like I said, he sees and knows all, he seems to be working through a network of reporters and witnesses. And the first witness is the wickedness itself. The wickedness itself. There's a verse in scripture that says this, be sure your sin will find you out. There is a sense in which our wickedness tattletales, tells on us in the courtroom and the throne room of heaven. It's a witness against us. If we go to Genesis chapter 18, we see this again with Sodom and Gomorrah. God is speaking with Abraham and he says this, I have heard the outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. Again, it's as if there has been a witness that has come before the throne room of God and given a report. And in this case, almost says, Lord God, we are so rotten, so malignant, put us out of our misery. And so God said, I've come down to see if this report is true, to see the extent of this report. 
So the witness, number one, is the wickedness itself. God sees and knows the, witness, the wickedness because of the witness of the wickedness. Amazing. Witness number two is blood or innocent blood. You remember the story in Genesis chapter 4 where the first son born on the planet, Cain, kills his own younger brother, Abel. And God comes to Cain and says to him and asks him a question, Cain, where is your brother? Well, God knew where his brother was. But it's as if God is giving Cain a chance to repent, to come clean. Because the Bible says, he who covers his transgression will not prosper, but he who acknowledges it and turns away from it will receive mercy. So God, in a sense, I'm confident, was giving Cain a chance to repent and receive mercy. But what did Cain do? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? It was almost, uh, uh, it was a, a lie for sure, but it was almost as if he couldn't care less about this confrontation with God, but God says to him, Cain, what have you done? For your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. The second witness is innocent blood. It's as if when innocent blood is shed, it gains a voice and becomes a witness against the murderer, the life taker. If that is the case, which I believe it is, and there are other scriptures to substantiate this, can you imagine the cacophony, the, the volume of voices that enter the ears of God on a moment-by-moment -moment basis from innocent blood that has been shed? Witness number two, innocent blood. But witness number three, we see are angels called watchers. In the book of Daniel, chapter four, we have a story of the arrogant king, Nebuchadnezzar. And he has a dream of this magnificent tree being cut down and only the stump being left. And we know that that tree is a picture of himself. And in the dream, the tree is cut down. Only the stump is left. That's a picture of his own demise. But there is a stump left, so he's not completely uprooted. And in the story, we see God being informed of Nebuchadnezzar's actions by a group of angels called watchers. Watchers. Three times in chapter 4, we see this title given to them, Watchers. And the amazing thing is, not only do they report on the details of Nebuchadnezzar, but God gives them the responsibility of actually sentencing Nebuchadnezzar, determining what his discipline would be fascinating. And we know that scripture teaches that angels are ministering spirits sent by God. And God has a host of them. And that God is an intimate note taker, if you will. The Bible says he collects all of our tears. He knows every hair on our head. He has named all the stars. God is into the details. Witness number one, the wickedness itself. Witness number two, innocent shed blood. Witness number three, the watchers, the angelic beings called the watchers. The fourth element of this that I want to bring forth is this thought that God has a line that he draws in the sand. 
He has a line that he draws in the sand. There's a limit to God's kindness. There's a limit to God's patience. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Speaking to people about salvation and about the goodness of God, he says this, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. Romans 2 verses 4 and 5. The great Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards elaborated on that verse with these words. He said, the wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the present, but they increase more and more and they rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. The longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. In Nahum chapter one, verses two and three, again, the prophecy about the doom of Nineveh The writer writes this, Nahum the prophet writes, The Lord is jealous and an avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. Beautiful, beautiful promise about the character of God in here. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. You guys, God sees and knows about the wickedness. He has witnesses that attest to it in addition to his own omniscience. But secondly, God sees beyond the wickedness. Beyond the wickedness. What do I mean? In chapter 1 of The book of Jonah, it says in verse 2, the wickedness of Nineveh has risen up before my face, God is saying. I've received report of it. There's been a witness who's told me of it. And here's what the word wickedness means. Of course, it means evil doing. It means wrongdoing, malignance, injury, wretchedness. It means all the things we might imagine it to mean. But in, again, the book of Nahum 3 verse 18, we get an insight of what was going on in that great city. Here's what it says, and God is addressing the king of Assyria. He says this, king of Assyria, your shepherds, in other words, your rulers, your mayors, your governors, your congressmen and women, they slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest. Meanwhile, your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. So we get an insight to what was going on in this city. Yes, it was evil. Yes, it was wicked. But the leadership was oppressive. The leadership was negligent. The leadership was abusive. The leadership was all about themselves, not about the people that they were called to lead. Wickedness in the Hebrew has another connotation to it. Here are a few words that indicate what wickedness also means. Grief, vexing, sorrow, distress, trouble, affliction, injury, and even sadness. Sadness. Proverbs 11.11 says this, 
By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted or lifted up. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. It is torn down. Now, to get a better sense of this, let's fast forward to Matthew chapter 9, where we encounter the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, God come to earth in flesh as the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Let's look at Jesus, the God-Man, our Savior. This is a beautiful picture, you guys, to see God doesn't just see the wickedness, he sees beyond the wickedness. Watch this. It says in Matthew 9, 35 through 37, that Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Jesus was with the people. You guys, I want you to understand, we have a God that loves people. He is with people. He wants to be with people. The word Emmanuel, that is one of the titles and names of Jesus, is God with us. God loves people. <laughs> I know that sounds so general and basic, but get it in, your, in, in the core of you that God loves people. And here we see Jesus. He's with the people. And it says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Let's break this down. What does the word seeing the people mean? Jesus says, it says, Jesus seeing the people felt compassion. The word seeing is a lot more than just glancing at or seeing them superficially. It means to see and to perceive something beyond just the superficial. It means to recognize something, and it literally means to see into. Jesus didn't just see flesh and blood. He saw into the core, the heart, the mind, the soul of the people. His eyes, his vision, his heart, his ability to see past the superficial, the outward, into the very core and heart. The eyes of God, you, you guys. The Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Jesus saw into the people. His disciples hadn't developed that yet. They saw people as irritations, as obstacles, as problems. When, when the mothers and fathers tried to bring their children, they tried to shoo the children away, and Jesus said, no. <laughs> bring the children to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus saw in ways that the disciples didn't see. And as God changes us and transforms our hearts, he also transforms our eyes. And we're able to see people with his eyes. We see not just the wickedness, but we see into them. And what do we see? It says he saw them as distressed. What does that mean? Troubled and tormented and vexed. Their internal being was just a massive, foaming, frothing torment. <laughs> they were vexed. They were in turmoil. And then it says also they were distressed and downcast or dispirited is another word. Two major pictures here. Dispirited literally means wine that has lost the bubbles, the fizz. There's no life in it any anymore. It's flat. There's so many people living flat-lined lives. They have lost the fire. They've lost the zest and the enthusiasm for life. And they're just plodding one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. 
but downcast also has the picture of a bow that has a taut bowstring that you pull an arrow and you can shoot to fight, to hunt, to provide. But downcast is, is, is the picture of de-stringing the bow and it's just hanging limp on the ground, in, unable to, to shoot an arrow. And the picture is that of people who have given up. They've just given up. They've de-strung, de-stringed their bow and it just lays in the dirt. They've given up. And when Jesus saw the people, he saw tired, troubled, tormented people who are right at the point of giving up. No more fire in their bones. No more life in their spirit. And when he knew what he had created them for, it tore at him. And it says he was filled with compassion. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that he just had a little twang in his heart. Does not mean that. It means to be moved in one's bowels. In one's core. And in that culture, the bowels were regarded as the seat of the violent passions. Anger, love, the fiery hot passions. And so what it literally means is when Jesus saw these people in this condition, his guts were wrenched. His guts were wrenched. He had a passionate, painful, almost violent reaction to it. He was moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. God sees past the wickedness and sees into the people. Sees them as sheep without a shepherd. It brings me to point number three, and that is this, that God is far more patient than I am. He loves his creation. God is far more patient than I am. Why did Jonah flee? Why did Jonah flee? Why did he disobey God? Was it because he was afraid of the Ninevites and their brutality? Not at all. Not even remotely close. Let's read chapter 3, verse 10, because we know what happened. He preached this ominous one-sentence message, the shortest message in all of history. Forty days, and Nineveh will be destroyed, and everyone in this massive city repented. Everybody, they all turned to God, every one of them, from the king on down. And here's what it says in 3 verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The gracious, patient, merciful, amazing heart of God a city that deserved judgment, deserved to be destroyed. But God relented and he did not bring destruction. He did not bring judgment because they repented. Verse 4, 4 verse 1, how did, how did Jonah respond? It says he was greatly displeased and he became angry. He wanted justice. He didn't appreciate or understand possibly mercy. He wanted justice. And he says in verse 2, he said, Lord, this is what I said while I was still in my country. When God called him, here's what the conversation going on in his head. He says, I knew that you would, that you are gracious and compassionate, 
slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. And I knew that you would give mercy to this city. And that was precisely what I did not want to happen. Therefore, I got in the boat and headed south as fast as I could because I knew who you were. I knew your grace. I knew your mercy. I knew you would relent if they would repent. And they did, and I hate it. He was furious. You guys, God is greatly merciful and gracious, far more than we are. Here is the perception of so many, especially younger, the younger generation, who have not read the Bible, do not understand the scripture, but have listened to too many voices. I had a conversation with a young man who walk, has walked away from his faith just recently, and here's what he said. He said, I won't ever follow a God who slaughters people. And he referred back to the Old Testament. Here's what I want you to understand. That's an ignorant understanding of the Bible. From Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation, God is a God of absolute grace and mercy. Yes, he is a God of judgment. It's interesting that Abraham Lincoln was described as a perfect balance of velvet and steel. I love that. That's such a beautiful description. But I'll tell you why he was. It's because he was a God-fearing man and he was full of the presence of God. Because in John chapter 1, verse 17, it says that through Moses, we received the law. We received God's holy standard. But through Jesus, we received the demonstration of this perfect combination of grace and truth, velvet and steel. From Genesis to Revelation, God has never been anything but a perfect combination of velvet and steel, grace and and truth. And in the Old Testament, if you read it, you really read it and you study it, here's what you find. You see David constantly questioning God, why are you letting the wicked get away with so much? God almost comes across as a permissive parent. We know he's not, but he almost comes across that way. Asaph, the worship leader of the nation of Israel, revered confidentially gives his testimony in Psalm 73 saying, as this man of God who stood in front of the people leading them in worship week after week after week, if they would have known the, the, the battle going on in my own soul, it would have been scandalous. What they didn't know, he, he discloses, was that I was that close to walking away from my faith because I saw the wicked flourishing. Their life seemed so easy, so... Uh, wealthy, so they have no problems. Here's me over here. I'm struggling like crazy, <laughs> trying to follow God, dedicated to God, and my life is difficult. And it said, my foot had almost slipped, he says. My foot had almost slipped until it went into the house of the Lord, and God gave him the bigger picture, and he realized he was so wrong. <laughs> he was so wrong about everything. But God loves people. God is far more patient than you and I. In 2 Peter verses three, verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, it says, God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrated actively in action <laughs> His unique love in that while we were still sticking our middle fingers up at him, 
shaking our fist in his face, Jesus went to the cross to die for us while we had turned our back on him, while we had called all of the truth that he brought a bunch of garbage, Jesus still went to the cross. He still shed his blood. God is far more patient than we would ever be. Far more patient than we would ever be. And he loves people. He loves people. I want you guys to understand this. God is so eager for people to repent and come to him. And he is repulsed by the idea of being separated from his creation. Get that clearly in your heart and mind because there are people who have this image of God, you know, wringing his hands and so eager to throw the, the wicked into hell. That is not the God of the Bible. He loves people and he's giving time and more time and more time and more time for people to repent, to humble their stubborn hearts and come to him. So finally, number four, number four, don't be part of the problem. Be part of the solution. Don't be part of the problem. Be part of the solution. If you read chapter two of the book of Jonah, and that's your homework, read the book of Jonah, and then read the book of Nahum. They complement one another beautifully. Chapter two, or no, I should say the last part of chapter one, I'm sorry, details that Jonah ran from God. He said no to God when God called him to go, to arise and go to Nineveh, to be a witness, to be a testimony, to be a voice of the grace of God. He said, no, I won't do it. He went down into a ship, fell asleep. And you know the story, a, God threw, says a, a violent storm against that ship. And those unsaved men on the boat, they were pagan men, the Bible's clear on this. They lost all their livelihood trying to survive the storm while Jonah is asleep down in the, the belly of the boat. And once they deduce all that was going on, they realize it was the man of God who's supposed to be changing the world elevating the world who was creating all the chaos and havoc in the world. Brothers and sisters, I want to place much of the responsibility for what's going on in our world back on our shoulders. When God calls us to rise and go and we turn and run or we neglect the call of God on our lives to go into all the world and preach the gospel, we become a major part of the problem. So I want to share two things with you. Number one, remember your own sin and your forgiveness. Remember your own sin and your forgiveness. Jonah didn't. Jonah saw the sin of Nineveh. He did not see his own sin. There was a story of a, of a teacher who asked her class a question. This was in Ireland. She asked, is there anything God can't do? And a little boy raised his hand, and when he was called upon, he said, yes, ma'am. God can't see my sins because of the blood of Jesus. God can't see my sins because of the blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the blood of Jesus has washed us, has cleansed us, has removed our sin. God the Father can't see our sins because of the blood of Jesus. We are clean. We are free because of Jesus, because we have heard a message and we've responded to it. 
He can't see our sin. Remember your sin. Remember your sin. Remember your forgiveness. You deserved God's wrath. I deserved God's wrath. We are Nineveh. We are Nineveh. It's a picture of us. But Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for my sin, for your sin. He took our places on the cross. Pastor and author Erwin Lutzer said this. He said, some people commit greater sins than others. But by seeing the heart, God knows that the differences between us are negligible. They're tiny. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great man of God during the time of Hitler, he wrote this. If my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. Brothers and sisters, don't be part of the problem by forgetting how much sin you and I have been forgiven of. <laughs> but secondly, be part of the solution. Remember your mission. Remember your mission. God always sends a messenger to warn before he sends judgment. He always, always sends a messenger to warn before he sends judgment. God came to Cain personally in Genesis chapter 4. God sent Moses to Pharaoh. God sent prophets to the people in the land of Canaan before he sent his own people back to take the land of Canaan. He gave those heathen nations that became the enemies of Israel 400 years to repent. 400 years before he said, wipe them out. 400 years. That's mercy, people. That's grace. God sent the judges, the priests, the kings, and the prophets to his own people and we know the story. They killed them. They sawed them in half. They slaughtered them. God sent Jonah to Nineveh. God sent John the Baptist to the Jewish nation to prepare them for Jesus. And then God the Father sent God the Son to be the light of the world and the Savior of the world. And now God sends you and me as the church into the world. Right now, he sends us. He sends us to declare the message that there is one name, one person under heaven given among men whereby we must all be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no one comes to the Father except through me. That is our message. I'm getting ready to start teaching through the book of Acts because it parallels so well, I believe, where our nation is going. And it is going to be powerful as we travel through this passage, through this book together, to see the early church, the new baby church, rise up in power in the midst of persecution, in the midst of opposition, and make a radical difference in the world. And that is our destiny as well. Acts is our story, not just their story. So it's now our turn, people. It's now our turn. God has called us to be the voice to this nation, not to go down into the ship and run away. He's called us to let our guts be wrenched with compassion, to see into people, not just to see the facade of their wickedness, but to see into them and see that they're downcast and distressed. Their bows are unstrung. They've given up. They're tormented. They're tired and troubled. It's our turn. 
My challenge is move past contempt to compassion. Have the guts of God. It's our turn to do it. It's our turn. Will you join me? I pray that you do. Lord Jesus, take the words of this message. May they resonate strongly in our hearts and in our spirits. May we rise up to obey you, not run away from you. I pray it in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Bless you this week. It's time to rise up, brothers and sisters. It's time to be courageous. It's time to stand in our identity and be who God called us to be. Let's do it. We'll see you next week. God bless you.